so you heard uh, uh, David earlier speak uh, just of a, a new season we're coming through uh, as we start, which is kind of fun. Uh, so here's, here's some good news. Uh, most of you know that we are headed into uh, some form of a building project so that we can move out of the school. The school told us uh, four, almost four years ago uh, that we could be in here for a year. Uh, so uh, they've been very gracious to us, allowing us to be here this long term. Uh, however, most of you know that we are headed into our uh, first uh, permanent facility as a church, which is going to be right out those doors, right over there to the right. Uh, and let me just tell you, it's been a long time kind of a lot of patience. Uh, but in the last two weeks, we've had a lot of movement with it. Uh, tons of movement, a lot of uh, moving forward, taking huge steps uh, in the right direction. And I can say that, uh, just with positivity that things are going uh, work. It, it's moving. It's going to be good. And in September, uh, I'm, we're going to be unveiling all of the information. Uh, we're going to be unveiling sketches to you what this building is going to look like, uh, budget numbers, all of those things in a path forward. Uh, so I'm really excited to tell you that. That's going to be called our advanced campaign. That's what Dave was speaking of a, a little bit earlier. Uh, so we're really Really excited uh, about this tool that God is going to allow us to use, and that's what it is. It is it is a great tool to accomplish our vision of reaching every single man, woman, and child within a ten-mile radius of this place, so that they can hear and see the gospel. That's what it's for. It's a tool. Uh, earlier this weekend, uh, we had a little staff retreat. We went down to the old Sheldon Church ruins, about an hour from here, close to Buford, uh, and it's, it's a 250-year-old uh, ruins of a church, uh, and uh, it's, it's just this fantastic site. And there's big brick walls, and then there's, uh, it's a beautiful site, but there's also grass, and there's no roof, there's no wood, there's no anything, everything's decayed, is gone, uh, there's grass in the middle of what was the church at one time, and you know, so 250 years ago, there, there stood a building, and that was a tool for that church to reach people for the gospel. Uh, and, you know, in 250 years, whatever we build over there uh, is probably going to be gone. And all of us are going to be gone, and hopefully with Jesus in heaven. And so uh, what we are thinking about building is a tool to reach people and make disciples. And so we had a chance to pray on that site over, um, over at Old Children Church. And uh, it was just a time for us to understand that. God has, is going to give to us a gift, and it's going to take some work to get there. Uh, we believe that this tool is going to be used uh, in a great way. So we're excited about it, but we also understand that God doesn't build buildings, He builds the church. And so we want to be a part of building the church together, which is every man, woman, and child within this, uh, within our 10 already in this book. So we're excited about that. So my hope is that you continue to pray, uh, continue to pray for good conversations moving forward with our uh, developers and builders and planners and architects and all that stuff. And we're excited about how God is going to move uh, in that direction. So let me take just a moment before I begin today and pray over that um, so that we can uh, get started in the right direction, okay? Father, we're grateful uh, for how, for so long, for many months, uh, we have seen very little movement in the direction of this building. But in the last two weeks, uh, you have been faithful uh, to just begin to take further steps. And I'm thankful for the men, uh, for the men and women in this process, uh, kind of behind the scenes, are making things happen. Uh, thank you for those who are gifting us with things, gifting us with knowledge, gifting us with finances. And I'm thankful for this church uh, that has been patient. Uh, and uh, they've been very forthright, continuing to be in this place while we're awaiting something a little better uh, uh, across the street. And so, Father, I pray that we continue to be patient, but we continue to be prudent with our finances, what you've gifted us with, that we can steward it well, and certainly uh, that we can use this tool, not as, not, not as this is the end all of our church that we finally arrived, but just to be a new beginning for us to be able to use uh, a new tool, a new resource that you are going to give to us to reach every man and child. So I pray that you be with us as we, uh, as we learn from your word this morning. 
Amen. Amen. So if you've got a Bible, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, we'd love uh, for you to have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love to give you a copy of God's Word. Uh, those will be at our Connect table. Uh, you can also look on uh, the Version app, and then all my notes will be there as well. Uh, and then if all else fails, they'll be up on the screen for you. Okay, So we really want you to engage in God's Word uh, this morning at some kind of level. Who has ever heard the Southern saying, or heard maybe somebody say this, Oh, bless his heart. You ever heard that? Now, there's lots of meanings to that, right? I mean, there's, it's like this universal pity, right? Uh, it, it could mean several things. It, it could mean that somebody, like, it's, he's, he's done something embarrassing, and then there's this, this kind of woman standing across like, oh, bless his heart, right? All right, and then, and then there's, you know, the, the very simple-minded person who's just like, man, that guy's stupid, right? And it's like, oh, bless his heart, right? And then, and then there's the, you know, the kid maybe with like an ailment, an outward, some kind of ailment that you can see, uh, and it's like, oh, bless his heart, and he's struggling through life with something. Um, I've heard all three of those about me multiple times. Um, <laughs> and one specifically, when I was a child, maybe many of you don't know this, uh, one of my eyes doesn't function, so the left one doesn't function very well. Uh, and when I was a child, I had one eye looking straight and the other one looking in a different direction. Uh, and so it was a little bit weird. And so what they did, they had some surgeries on that. Uh, and then I, I was the kid with a patch. Not a cool pirate patch, but one of those like flesh-colored ones that make you look really weird, right? Uh, and so that was me when I was like five, six years old, uh, and, and so I got a lot of well, bless his heart, right? And, and what that what that whole uh, circumstance did for me is, is my sight isn't very good. I, I see everything out of my right eye. So if you're over here and you're looking at me, I probably don't see you at all. All right. So there's there's some there's some blind spots in my life. I also have problems with depth perception. So if I fall off the stage for some reason, it's probably because I don't see. Okay. So uh, but, I, but I have blind spots. There's things that I don't see. And some of that, you know, some of that is, is funny, but I think all of us have blind spots. Maybe not like visually within your vision, but I think a lot of us have blind spots within our own life. And so most of them are funny, or they're laughable. I, I, you know, I found out over the last couple of weeks that um, my driving isn't so great, and every time we go to lunch with the staff, they take their life into their own hands. Um, and so they've let me know this, and they've let me know about this blind spot in my life that they're terrified to get in my car. I don't know why. Um, so... Uh, but but there's blind spots in everybody's life. Some of them are more serious. Some of us have some significant blind spots within our character. We might have some pride issues that we don't see, some arrogance issues that we might not see, some anger. You know, it's interesting about children if you're a parent. Uh, children are wonderful barometers of blind spots in your life. Because they see how you act, and they see those blind spots that you don't see, and they act them out without a filter. And so, but the problem is, is that you don't see them in your life, and you just see them in your child's life. They're mimicking you, right? I, sometimes my children are very impatient, and, and I'm like, why are you like that? You know? And then I have to realize, like, I'm very impatient with them, right? And they're just mimicking or parroting what I do to them. And they often will point out blind spots uh, in, our, in our life. Now, as a country, uh, the United States of America, more evident today than ever, uh, one of our biggest blind spots in history was slavery. We, we, um, for whatever reason, for a very long time, this country uh, was okay with this issue of humans owning other humans. And it was a big blind spot for us. We justified it for some odd reason, where we somehow thought that this was okay. God thought that it was okay. It's a massive blind spot um, in our history. 
So the question is, how do you see or how do you know what your blind spots are? Now, the only way, the only way for, it to, for you to know them is if somebody else points them out. Because there is absolutely, it is impossible for you to see a blind spot. You know why? Because you're blind to it. It's very, very simple. And so somebody either has to point them out to you, or you have the option of possibly stopping them or rooting them out before they even become blind spot. You hear me? And so it is possible that if we get to the root of the problem, it will never become a blind spot to begin with. I believe that a lot of the blind spots in our life, whether they be character issues or maybe even small laughable things, I, I think that the blind spots in our life often come because of, um, because of entitlements that we believe that we have. Let me define what an entitlement is. An entitlement is something that you believe or you assume that you have just because you are who you are. That you assume something about your life and you own it, not because you've earned it, but just because you are who you are. You are entitled to something. You assume something about yourself just because you are you. And when oftentimes we don't, we don't see this assumption, we don't see this entitlement. And when it begins to manifest itself, it becomes a blind spot for us. And so what I want to talk about today, I think this was happening in the uh, city of Ephesus where Timothy was pastoring a church there, and he was having some problems. He had written to Paul, his mentor, and he, he said, we have a couple problems with some entitlements, with some blind spots that my church is having, and I need some advice. And so Paul is writing back to Timothy, kind of giving him some guidance on how to deal with the church's blind spots. And thankfully, there's basically one answer that he gives to him for about three different things. And so uh, these, three, these three things at the end of 1 Timothy are a little bit random, but I do believe that Paul gives the same exact answer for how to identify a blind spot because of an entitlement that they began uh, to have. Okay? So we're going to look at, so here we're going to look at these, uh, these three blind spots in this passage in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6. I'll tell you what they are, so if you're a note-taker, note I'm going to give you all three of my points right up front, okay? So the three entitlements are these. Entitled to work, entitled to truth, and entitled to money or wealth. Entitled to work, entitled to truth, and entitled to wealth. So I want you to see these in the first 10 verses of chapter 6, okay? Look at your Bibles up to the screen, look at your phone, however you want to read the Word of God, you can do that. But read along with me. It says this in verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be dis disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better. Since those, who, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, with, um, uh, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of truth. Imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. 
For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with, um, with these, we, are, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many things. Okay, so Paul's working through some of these entitlements that the church is having, and they're dealing with blind spots, and he has one simple instruction on how to deal with all these blind spots. And if you're writing this down, the one answer is contentment. You'll see this, this whole thing over and over again. His answer for entitlements is contentment. So this is what he said. The first, the first one is that they felt that they were entitled to work or entitled to a job. Now, the first two verses there are a little bit tricky because they are dealing with slavery. Because in that day, in the city of Ephesus, it was happening, it was culturally sound, that there were people or masters who owned other people. Now, the Bible speaks of this, and Paul is giving some instruction on what they are to do. This does not mean, hopefully you will know this, because maybe you might hear this in the media, this does not mean the Bible condones or supports slavery. If we look at the whole counsel of God's Word, specifically from creation, we understand that every human being is created in the image of God and has the value of, has the value of a great child of God. And so it should not be that anyone should own another human being. And so slavery is wrong. It is evil. We know that here in America. Back then in Ephesus, that's the way that they practiced. And so Paul, knowing the cultural context, doesn't support it or condone it, but he is teaching on how to deal with an evil culture. Jesus himself had to deal with things within the culture that he doesn't necessarily condone or support. Jesus taught on what to do in divorce situations. Does that mean that Jesus condoned or supported divorce? No, it just means that it was a reality that was happening and he had to teach through it. Does that make sense? So Paul is talking about slavery and what to do within slavery, but that doesn't mean that he supports it. It's just teaching. He's just teaching on what to do within a cultural condition of slavery. So, but I think the principle still remains solvent about what Paul is trying to do. So the principle is: you have this job. You have a job to do. You are serving in some kind of way. What he says is: you need to be respectful of those who are in authority over you that you are to honor, and you are to work hard. You see, I think that many of us might have the problem that the Ephesians were having, which was they just felt entitled to have a job. They felt entitled that they should have a good job that pays well, that they don't have to work very hard, that they get all the benefits, and their boss thinks that they're the best things that God has ever gifted to their company. Right? And they think this even more, especially if they're working with or working for another Christian brother. And so they, they begin this kind of entitlement. And when you have an entitlement in your workplace, it makes you work less. It makes you work uh, in a weaker state. You don't work as hard if you believe that you're just entitled to pay and entitled to less work. But in fact, the Scripture calls us as Christians to something completely different. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, another one of Paul's letters, he says this very simply. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. This speaks directly into our kind of theology of labor or work. That we should be the ones in our workplace who are working the hardest. That, yes, their circumstances might not be the best, 
There might be another opportunity out there for you that you want to go pursue, and that's all well and good. But while we're in the workplace, we are demonstrating the person of Jesus Christ. We are demonstrating what a Christian does and acts even in the worst circumstances. We are not complainers. We are respecters. We honor our bosses. We honor our masters, so to speak. And we give, we, uh, we, we give honor to, the, to those who are over us. And we work hard at everything we do. See, this turns into a blind spot. And you know who, who sees the blind spots? Your other coworkers. They see them. They see the blind spot of your entitlement. They see that you have impatience and pride with your boss. They see arrogance when you see frustration. They don't see you as a leader. They see you as a problem. And your employer sees you as a problem to fix, not an asset to promote. And so as Christians, we have to function with this idea that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, however we work, however we labor, whatever our job is going to be, we do it all for the glory of God. And if it means that we have ambition to do another job, then we should do that respectfully. But in the, in the job that God has given to us in our workplaces, we should be honoring God in everything that we do. So that others might be able to see Christ within us. Okay? Now Jesus was the greatest example of this. You have to understand that the king of the universe, the one who spoke the world into existence, spent the first 30 years of his life in the workplace. He spent it as a carpenter. So he sweat and he toiled. He made chairs and tables and furniture and other and all and doors and all sorts of things as a carpenter for 30 years before he began his earthly ministry. He sweat and toiled in the workforce, and he had a very good view of the theology of work. You see, before uh, I mean, I, before the nails went into his hands, there were splinters that went into his fingers from the work. And so us, as Christians, we have to understand that we need to have proper theology of work and work hard and not be entitled so that others might be able to see Jesus through us. So the second thing that Paul talks about is truth. Entitled truth, and he talks about it in this way. He talks about pretentious and opinionated people. Pretentious and opinionated people, he describes them this way. He says, these people are unhealthy, uh, craving for controversy. These are people who love quarreling, dissension, slander. They're suspicious of other people. And here's the thing. There's, I mean, there are very good entitlements sometimes. I mean, in, in America, we have entitlements. We have rights. It's one of the most beautiful experiments of all humankind. That you know, The American experiment is a beautiful thing. We have the right, God-given, the right to free speech. We have the right and entitlement. These are all good entitlements. We have the right to practice our own faith, our own religion. We have the practice to peacefully assemble. We have the practice to not be, uh, you know, searched and seizure. And the Bill of Rights outlines all these things. And these are all very good entitlements. But what Paul is talking about here is that he believes that people have manipulated this idea of a free of free speech and free opinions into believe that we have we have twisted it into. Uh, I have the right to my own truth. I have the right to my own truth. And that, in our culture, is a very big deal. It, it manifests itself in people coming up with an alternative reality where they decide what is right and wrong, and there's no absolute to decide that. 
that the black and white of culture, the black and white of ethics and morals has been decided not by some kind of absolute state, but by themselves. Whatever is best for me is what is right and true. And unfortunately, I think that that is a blind spot in a lot of our lives, where we decide what is big T truth. And we do not allow the gospel to speak as to what is big T truth. And we have our opinions, and our opinions are, give us this kind of entitlement, right? We are entitled to be right. So, so early on in our marriage, uh, so my wife is a very bright and wise person. And, uh, and I'm pretty sure that if uh, she didn't take on her first calling as a full-time mom, she would probably be a politician. So uh, she, she's very strong and understands a lot of different issues at a very deep level. Uh, and in her home growing up, uh, they fostered a uh, kind of environment of, I guess, debate and opinion. Like, that was okay. It was okay to debate mom and dad. It was okay to, like, have your own opinion and state that opinion and fight for that opinion. In my house, when I grew up, Fostered a, yeah, you're right, okay, that's great. You know, there, there was no, like, you don't have an opinion, right? Your opinion is my opinion. So, I didn't grow up in a house, so, like, I'm just very kind of, uh, like, non-confrontational. That's my deal. I'm a little child. I'm just kind of non-confrontational, right? Uh, but that's not how Adrian grew up, and that's not her exact personality. She has opinions about things, and she wants to tell you exactly what her opinion is, and she wants to debate about it. And that's a, good, and that's a great thing. She's very smart. Now, most of the time, I didn't engage with that. And then one time, I decided to do that. Um, I decided to engage with, I don't remember what the topic was, uh, but I decided to engage, and I had an opinion about a very specific issue. I felt very strongly about it, and I, she probably was playing devil's advocate, or maybe she disagreed with me, I don't really know. But it began this debate, and it was this like fierce debate over some kind of issue and, and, I, and I remember, like, she's okay if you disagree with her. Like, she's not going to be personally offended. Me, if you, if you go against what I think, like, I think that you hate me. Like, I mean, it's, like, I, I do not like being disagreed with. It is not a fun thing for me, right? But to her, it's just fun. Like, that's just like a good Saturday afternoon activity, right? And, uh, and so, I mean, was, so I felt like she, you're not going to support my right to be, to have an opinion. And she looked at me and she said, no, I support you. I support your right to be wrong. <laughs> and, uh, and so, unfortunately, and then I was wrong on, the, on that one thing. And it's been 11 years and I'm still waiting to be right about one of these issues. Um, and so, I I'm just Anyway, but I was wrong. I felt so intense. I was so intense about this one particular issue, about my opinion. I was right. I was entitled to my opinion. I was entitled to be right. And I was wrong. I was wrong. Paul's talking about this idea that you're entitled to free speech. You're entitled to speak. But you're not entitled to decide what truth is. And Paul states that God has already gifted us with the truth. He has gifted us with the gospel. And that is the most important truth. And that, as he says in this text, is what we should be fighting for. That we shouldn't quarrel and we shouldn't get frustrated or suspicious or envious of other people. We should... Um, 
and we shouldn't get frustrated with other people, but we need to pick our battles well. We don't need to be contentious. We need to be very careful about what we believe to be true. And we need to be exhorting to be thinking, thinking through these things. You see, our Savior, Jesus, he knew this very well. Jesus majored on the major and minored on the minors. He did not get into frivolous quarrels at all. Our Savior picked his battles very well. In fact, at his, uh, when, when he was on trial, the Bible says that he stood there silent because they were bringing up charges that had no truth within him. And he, as the Savior of the universe, had no place with falsehood. He was going to speak the truth at all times and figure out what that was. And when it came time and purposeful for him to speak the truth, he did it because he was never, he, because he made truth. So the third thing that Paul talks about is this, entitled to wealth. Struggle with entitlement to wealth. Now, our westernized lives, I mean, if you don't struggle with this like I do, then, you're, then you are a misnomer, okay? So, I mean, we have an entitlement in a westernized world to wealth. All of us do. We understand and assume that we're going to eat three square meals a day, that we're going to have a shelter over our head at night, and then we're, you know, we're going to have clothes on our bed, we're going to have a car to drive. We have all of these entitlements, and we assume that these things are necessary, right? Internet is necessary. Television is necessary. A nice car is necessary. It might be everything is necessary. It is an assumption. It is an entitlement for us to have these things. That's not the rest of the world. 25% of the world lives on a dollar or less a day. Another 25% of the world lives on $2 or less a day. So 50% of the world lives on $2 or less per day. We, we, if, if, all, if you live and you make more than $20,000 a year, you are in the top 8% of the world. If you make $20,000 or more a year, you're in the top 8% in the world. We have this idea of wealth, and it is often a blind spot within us, that we assume that we need these things. And we have to be very careful about money. So Paul, learned, Paul talks to us about this blind spot. Look at verse 9 and 10. Look at verse 9 and 10. It says this. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Just capture that for a second. Those who desire to be rich plunge themselves into ruin and destruction. Like, those are hard words. That's tough. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many things. The root the root, or at least you know, what Paul says, not the, it's not money that is the root of evil, but love of money. I want to be very clear about that. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils, and the cravings for it will plunge us into destruction. You see, materialism is a blind spot for a lot of us. Materialism is very destructive. Materialism is kind of like drinking seawater. You understand that if you were out in the ocean and needed something to drink, there's tons of water to drink. But the more that you drink of it, the more thirsty you will become, and the, and, and the more dehydrated that you will become, the more that you drink of it. Materialism is somewhat like that, and wealth is somewhat like that. Where the more that you have, becomes the more that you need. You need more things and more toys and more stuff. And you believe, we, we 
believe that if we buy our children more toys, they will be more disciplined. Right? They will listen to us more if we give them more things. That mom and dad, it, it's your purpose, and be, just be very careful about this because it's one of my biggest pet peeves. That moms and dads all over this country and all over this community, for that matter, moms and dads are working so many hours to provide more money for your children so you can buy them more things to do while you're not there with them. We have to be very careful about this whole deal with materialism. Because it will plunge us into a form of destruction. Now, we're, we're going to be talking about this a little bit more uh, next week. But, uh, but we understand that, now, looking at Jesus again, Jesus was poor. He came from a poor town, barely made any money, and was completely penniless and naked when he died. That's the Savior of the universe. Now, am I saying that you need to be penniless and naked? That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that when we take our cues from our Savior, the one who we're supposed to be following, we need to think through contentment in our lives. So how do we deal with the blind spot of wealth? We deal with it with simple contentment. Paul says this in verse 6 6 and 7. But godliness with contentment is great gain. So what, what does he say about wealth? He says that wealth leads us into the pains of destruction. That's what he says. But then he says this. Contentment is of great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Now, contentment is a word. We might use it in church, but we usually don't use it in normal conversation. You know, it probably doesn't come up. You probably haven't even heard that word. Or you might have heard of it, but you don't really talk about it on a regular basis. So you need to be content. So what does contentment mean? It's really a mental thing. But I want to put some handles on it, because contentment is something that I can ask you to go outside of this place. Hey, make sure today that you are content. And that's a little bit difficult. It's difficult to carry that suitcase out of this place and have any kind of realistic expectation upon your life or action. So I want to put a couple handles on what it means for us to be content. Okay, so if you're a note taker or memorizer, make sure you memorize these three things about contentment. Number one, live simple. Live simple. Number two, give generously. And number three, thrive eternally. Number one, live simply. Number two, give generously. Number three, thrive eternally. Here's what I mean by that. Thinking through living simply. I, I want to like, hurt your intelligence, but just thinking through. How can you in your life, in your home, live a little bit more simply? I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a couple things. You can think through it. Three, two, one. Okay, three, two, one. Pick three things in your house this afternoon that you need to get rid of that are distractions to your life. Pick three things. They're, they're distractions. They're allowing you to be more complex in your life. What are three things in your home that you can get rid of today that will help you to live a little bit more simply? They're things that you spend a lot of time on that don't, don't, that don't bear a whole lot of fruit. They're distractions for you. They're distractions against your, your marriage. They're distractions against your children. They're distractions against what God would have you to do. Three things in your life. Two. Two hours in your week. How can you create two hours in your week where there's margin for rest? We're in this kind of Sabbath season for the church. What would it look like for you to look at your calendar and look at your week and say, here's two hours this week where I'm going to create some margin to just live a little bit more simply and rest my soul a little bit more. So three things that you need to get rid of. Two hours this week that you need to think through margin in your life. 
and then one extravagance that's causing you a lot of time and a lot of resources. Three things that you can get rid of, two hours this week, and then one extravagance in your life that is just a little bit off kilter. That just causes you a lot of time and a lot of resources within your family. That's how we begin to live simply. Number two gives you we're going to be talking about this a good bit next week. But I can think of, I thought about this this week, I can think of a hundred different things that I've bought for myself that I regret. I can't think of one thing that I'd give away to somebody else that I regret. Can you? Generosity is not something that we regret, but buying stuff for ourselves, we do it all the time. Generosity helps our soul. Generosity fights against this idea of materialism and the destruction that leads to our soul. So we're going to be dealing with that every day next week. But how thinking through how you can give generously. And then lastly, thriving eternally. Thriving eternally. Do you know that the only relationship 100 years from now is your relationship with God? That the only relationship that matters is your relationship with God? 100 years from now. We're all going to be hit. All of us. And the only relationship that matters 100 years from now is your relationship with God. So how are we going to think eternally? How are we going to think eternally and thrive eternally? Jesus said this. He said this in Matthew 6, 19-21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, nor where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, nor where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What we, what we do here in life matters in eternity. We have to think through, are we giving glory to God with our life and with our actions? And will we spend our life investing into ourselves, or will we spend our lives investing into eternity? And I think the first step there is to remove this blind spot, root it out, and then live a little bit simply, give generously, and then thrive, kind of, thrive eternally. I want to share with you one of my heroes that I believe that has done this incredibly well. I've, I've mentioned this before, but, that, but I just love these people and love this family so much because I think they embody everything that I've talked about today. And hopefully maybe our church is going to have a deeper relationship with them. But they're my friends Stephen and Sarah. And Stephen and Sarah are from Sumner, South Carolina. And uh, Stephen told me a story, uh, kind of his testimony. He said, um, <clears throat> he said, you know, I think it was Eight, no, it was uh, 16 years ago when he and Sarah got married. They felt this call to be missionaries in Africa. And, uh, and he had just graduated from college with a business degree. Uh, he was promised a six-figure job to go into commercial real estate. And, uh, but there, there was this call to go to Africa. And he said, you know what? Nope, I'm going to take the job. I'm going to take the job. And they had some kids, and they lived very fruitfully. They had a really nice house in the country. It was beautiful and awesome. They had two kids walking through at the time. It's just a fantastic life for them. But there was this discontentment because they were not doing what God had called them to do. About eight years ago, the call came again. Hey, you know, should we go to Africa? And at the time, they, they had a big family issue that they needed to deal with. And so the entitlement came and the blind spot came with this. There was this call to go to Africa, but the blind spot was, we're going we're gonna to stay with our family because we're entitled to our relationship with our family. And if we move to Africa, then we won't have our family with us. And so I want to stay with that. And four years ago, finally, it was again, the call came again. It was so evident God wanted them 
to, uh, to go to Africa as um, missionaries to share the gospel with Muslims. And uh, finally I said, you know what? We have no more excuses anymore. This has been a huge blind spot in our life where we have ignored the call of God. So you're talking about contentment. Things got rid of his six-figure job. They sold everything they had. They sold their quarter-million-dollar home. And they sold everything they had. They took their four children, and they went after this. Is that picture. And uh, they're there, and they are every day building churches, uh, reaching, reaching a huge uh, 700,000 person Muslim community in Nairobi. And, and everything, when I was thinking through all these contentment pieces, thinking through the blind spots in my own life, I kept on being reminded of this couple that has this family. They have, they have rooted out every blind spot in their life. And I'm not saying that you need to root up your whole entire life and go to Africa. That's not what I'm saying. You might be that because you might be called, be called to do that. And that would be fantastic. But I wanted to show you an example of what it looks like to be completely rid of your blind spots and say, I'm going to go where God calls me to go. I'm going to be content with the things they live. They live in a house in Nairobi where barely has any power and running water and all sorts of stuff. And so they've, they've been content to live just with food, water, and their family. And, uh, and, and so I, I love that picture of the gospel in your life. So my question for you is, how are you walking out of this room to live more simply, to give more generously, and to thrive? Before I pray, um, do this one. With every eye closed and head bowed, um, those three things. We think about content. We think about content. When you think through this idea of living simply, giving generously, thriving eternally, what's the one thing that kind of stands out to you? What is the action statement that you need to make today? I'm going to give you a moment. I just want you to pray directly to God, silently right there in your own seat. And resolve to take action with something about this today. You can say something like, Father, I resolve to live simply in this, this way, whatever it is. Father, I resolve to give generously in this way. Father, I need a better and bigger vision of my future thrive eternally in this way. Just pray for that. Father God, we recognize that you are Savior, and I'm thankful that your son Jesus came to live humbly, contented with what you provided for him. That before the nails in his hands, there were splinters in his fingers with honorable work. And that he was not distracted by opinions of the world and certainly uh, was not given uh, to the entitlement of, world, of wealth. But Father, I'm thankful for his example in our lives of how we are to be continuously striving to be more like him. 
so, Father, as we consecrate our lives today, maybe it's something simple, maybe it's something big, but, Father, I pray that maybe today, this afternoon, that we would go home and make decisions that are going to lead us towards a simpler life, one that is focused more deeply in the, in the roots of the gospel. Jesus, thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving your life for us so that we can live more abundantly. Yeah, but this is a